This is Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. My guest today is Jungian analyst and author James Hollis. He was born in Springfield, Illinois, graduated from Manchester University in 1962, and Drew University in 1967. He taught humanities for 26 years in various colleges and universities before retraining as a Jungian analyst at the C.G. Jung Institute in Zurich from 1977 to 1982. Dr. Hollis is presently a licensed Jungian analyst in private practice in Washington, D.C. He served as executive director of the C.G. Jung Educational Center of Houston, Texas for many years and now is executive director of the Jung Society of Washington. He is a retired senior training analyst for the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts, was first director of training of the Philadelphia Jung Institute, and is vice president emeritus of the Philemon Foundation. He is also a co-founder of the Jungian Studies Program at Saybrook University of San Francisco and Houston. He lives with his wife, Jill, an artist and retired therapist, in Washington, D.C. Together, they have three living children and eight grandchildren. Dr. Hollis has written a total of 14 books and over 50 articles. The books have been translated into Swedish, Russian, German, Spanish, French, Hungarian, Portuguese, Turkish, Italian, Korean, Finnish, Romanian, Bulgarian, Farsi, Japanese, Greek, Chinese, and Czech. I have a long history with Dr. Hollis. I first met him back in 2001 at a lecture he gave in Columbus for the Jung Association of Central Ohio. After that, I read most of his books as he was my former analyst training analyst. I then attended a talk he gave in Dallas in 2013 and another one here in Chicago in 2014. After this recording, he agreed to do another one for this podcast so that we can focus on relationships and his book, The Eden Project, In Search of the Magical Other. This interview was recorded on May 17, 2017, through the magic of Skype. Dr. Hollis, one of the most profound things I've ever heard you say is the problem with the unconscious is it's unconscious. And another thing I've heard you say repeatedly is it's not about what it's about. Mm-hmm. And what I take that as, it's not about what I think it's about, that there's always something underneath it. For instance, a couple of people got into a fight over a parking spot and I heard somebody just tell the story and say, oh, you know, over a parking spot, can you believe that happened over a parking spot. And I'm thinking, it's not about the parking spot, mm-hmm. right? That's so would, right. Would you say a little bit about that? Well, to start with the first idea, um, we literally can't say anything about the unconscious. And in fact, it's a theory. And yet we have to notice that things keep spilling into the world through us. And the way I've often put it is, you know, we have to acknowledge that the only person present in that long running soap opera we call our lives is ourselves. And therefore, you know, we have some accountability for how our lives are turning out. Of course, we're at the mercy of forces around us, our family of origin, our, our DNA, our social context, etc. But we make choices on a daily basis. 
And uh, those choices uh, arise out of often places that of which we're not aware. Um, one of the fantasies that we all awaken with in the morning is that we're conscious, we know what we're doing, we possess enough information to make proper choices and so forth. And yet, uh, as we all know, along life's highway, we find places where uh, things didn't turn out as we expected, or there are unintended consequences, or there are disturbing patterns. And one of the ways to begin to discern the presence of the unconscious is to look at those patterns. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we don't rise in the morning and say, well, today I'm going to say, do the same stupid sort of non-productive, maybe even self-injuring uh, um, decisions today as I've done for decades. But chances are we will, because our, our behaviors are coming out of what has been activated within our psyche. And, and, and our psyche contains all of our history at one level, but at another level, it, it contains the sort of history of the human race as well. I mean, we're not exempt from the whole human condition. And it also is specifically sort of dotted with clusters of energy that we've acquired in, in the course of our particular journeys, as opposed to maybe someone else. So when, when those clusters of energy and those sort of splinter histories are activated, um, they, they have the power to come up and sort of usurp consciousness and, and take over. And a behavior occurs. And, um, you know, human beings have recognized for a very long time the powers of the unconscious and how our, our first response is often the triggering of what Jung would have called a, a complex. And so we hear advice like, well, count 20 before you say something. And, and obviously 20 is not enough. Sometimes we have right. to count 20,000. Or write the letter, but don't send it for a few days. And, th mm -hmm. and then you read it again, you think, oh, well, that's not really what I feel now, or that's, that's not what I really want to say, or that's not even really what the issue's about. And we realize in those moments, we, we've been in servitude to those sort of clusters of energy in our own psychological history called the complexes, and we have them because we have a history. I, I, I heard you say at a lecture once that when we're in a complex, we are, quote, transiently psychotic. Yes, because in some way, uh, our identity is altered, our perception of reality is altered. Mm -hmm. um, we, we are usually in service to a script, uh, perhaps a very fragmentary script, but a script from long ago and far away. So it's fair to say we are, for the moment, removed from a conscious reaction to this time and this place. And that's why in the fight over the parking spot that you referenced, um, you know, often people's psychological history has been uh, activated in all of that. So, I mean, we're all familiar, for example, of the rather terrible examples of um, road rage. Mm -hmm. And in, in fact, traffic moves because people move in and out of open spaces. And that's how we all navigate traffic. It's like a great flowing river. But at a particular moment when a person's psychologically vulnerable and uh, he or she is cut off at the pass, it happens to activate uh, a complex at that time. And the sort of voice from the past comes up and says in so many words, and we don't hear it this clearly, but we're taken over by the emotion attached to it. Uh, see, there they go again. They're always doing it to you. They disregard you. You know, they don't take you seriously. Words to that effect. Mm -hmm. And out comes a, a significant amount of energy that's been sort of programmed there historically through the years. And it often leads to destructive behavior.
Mm-hmm. So it, it, it speaks to that second point you made that it's not about what it's about. In other words, um, <clears throat> if, if I step into the shower in the morning and it's too hot or too cold and I make adjustments, then I'm, I'm properly reacting from ego consciousness to my, my, my environment, to my external reality. But from that moment on, significant parts of our psychic life and our behaviors are arising out of what other kinds of um, histories and materials have been activated within our, our history. So when we do something, it's not so much what we're doing and why we think we're doing it. It's what it's really in service to in the unconscious that makes a difference. And again, because the unconscious is unconscious, we may not know the answer to that, which is why we all have to engage at some point in a kind of forensic investigation of our own history. Mm-hmm. And to work backwards, you know, one of the ways that we can talk about that which we can't talk about, namely the unconscious, is to start with the concrete patterns, work backwards and say, now, now what kinds of energies, issues, scripts, if you will, could produce this kind of behavior in my life? And it's then we begin to feel the stirrings, the resonance within us that tells us, you know, you're, you're beginning to track something that's important to you. Uh, perhaps a better uh, illustration is how people will recognize relational patterns. You know, you can change persons in your life and change your relationships, but there are familiar dynamics. And again, who brings those dynamics to the relationship? What o- o- obliges us to choose one person over another? What sets up the kinds of familiar patterns that the couple engage in? And that's coming not only from my unconscious history, but often the unconscious history of the other person as well. Mm-hmm. No wonder relationships are so uh, complicated. Mm-hmm. Getting back to the complex, um, I heard you describe a complex as history on parade, which I think is a very helpful way of looking at it. And you also said that the problem is, when a complex has us, we don't mm-hmm. know it. And that was that was very eye-opening to me is that the you said that the problem is when we're in it, it feels appropriate. Yes, yes. The amount of energy, such as the fear generated or the anger generated or the compliance generated or something else. You know, a person, the, the, the phone rings and someone asks you to do something you really don't want to do, but you wind up saying yes because, you know, it's activated our history that suggests perhaps in many of life's circumstances, it's, it's better to sort of go along, to, to be uh, adaptive, to, to be agreeable, um, and to, to in sense, smooth the, the wheels of, of relationships. And then you sort of fall out of that complex and you come back and you say, you know, I really didn't want to do that. Why did I say yes to that? I mean, it's a familiar kind of phenomenon in, in many of us. And, and so in, in those moments, uh, I think we have to realize Uh, psychologically speaking, metaphorically speaking, another identity has taken over. You know, Jung called complexes splinter personalities, Mm -hmm. which is a a good phrase. And that means in that moment, we are pulled out of this instant in our history and, and the materials and the perspective and the script as well as the the bodily aspects of you feel it in your body and the energy system uh, is activated from our history. And it has a certain finite amount of history, so it it enacts its program. It's like a little cyclone. And then when it's blown through us, it it recedes into the unconscious, and, and we have a different perspective on things. 
Now, what would you say to somebody uh, that says, well, I don't have any complexes? Well, that's a very unconscious person. <laughs> I mean, I think all you'd have to do is ask those around that person, all right, wh what do you see in this person's life that uh, is repetitive in nature and, and often problematic? Uh, where do you see this person sort of getting in his or her own way? Where do you find damaging aspects of this relationship? Uh, where do you see this person sort of stuck in reflexive responses to situations? I mean, it's impossible not to have complexes because we, we all have a history and, and some of them are positive. Uh, for example, uh, without even particularly thinking about it, as you begin to cross a, a street, let's say you're crossing Michigan Avenue in Chicago, mm -hmm. you, you automatically look left and right because that's a positive complex. Someone had to teach you that or you had to learn the hard way. And without thinking about it, that complex is protecting your life. So many of these complexes are protective. To, to go back to the example I gave, the phone rings, you say yes to something you don't want to do. Well, at one time, going along with the other felt protective, felt maybe necessary, felt uh, obliged given the discrepancy of power uh, between the child, let's say, and an adult or a teacher or someone else. And, and today, of course, when that's activated, it disempowers a person and puts them in a position that is, is not one that they, they truly want psychologically. Mm -hmm. So the problem is not a complex. <laughs> to, to say I have no complexes is a complex. <laughs> in other words, right. that's a person who's saying, uh, I, I can't really bear to truly examine my own history and my own behavioral patterns or interrogate others as to how I'm really affecting them. Um, because that would undo my shaky sense of self, and, and therefore I better insist that I'm, I'm fine and maybe you're not, mm -hmm. and life is easier that way. Right, right. And I also want to ask you about analysis. Being in analysis or in any other type of therapy does not make you get rid of your complexes, does it? No, no, it, because that would be like saying our history didn't happen. Okay some level, our history is ingrained in our neurology, it's ingrained in our, our psyches. And an example, if tonight you might uh, dream of your third grade teacher, and you haven't seen her for 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, but, but she's still alive, so to speak, in, in your psyche. And, um, you know, in, in therapy, our, our whole purpose is to examine the degree to which and, and from what vectors in our history does our, our sort of ingrained uh, psychological set of adaptations show up in ways that are interruptive to our lives or, or create these distancing patterns? In other words, we're not focused on the past. That's not the point at all. You don't lie on a couch and complain about mom and dad, although those are always going to be powerful internalized experiences naturally. Mm -hmm. But, um, you, you know, it's really about how these presences are operative in your present moment, in, in this instant. You know, as, as Faulkner said, the past isn't dead. It's not even past. And it's not. It's present and active. The only question is, are you aware uh, it's almost as if the ego consciousness thinks it's the CEO of the corporation and, you know, I'm in charge, I'm the boss, I make all the executive decisions. And, and then the whole corporation winds up in a place you hadn't expected 
or is is sort of afflicted by you know emotions like depression or panic or self-medication and you realize there are other presences at the executive uh, table you know invisible partners if you will Mm-hmm. And if we're not aware of the invisible partners, you can't really argue that you're, you're conscious. You'd have to say, you know, consciousness is, is, as I've put it, a kind of thin wafer floating on an iridescent sea. And it arrogates to itself a lot of power and a lot of authority because it's insecure in that position. Mm-hmm. But the proper attitude is, is really humility. What is it I don't know about this situation? What is it I don't know about you? What is it I don't know about the parts of my history that are activated here? What is it I don't know about the other forces that are brought to bear in in my behaviors and decisions today? And we seldom ask those kinds of questions until we stub our toe or run into conflict uh, of of some kind. It's at that point. A person might well say, well, what was really going on there? And where did that come from in my history and what was activated? And that's the beginning of wisdom. But wisdom is ultimately always humbling. It's, it's never, um, you know, it can be empowering, but it doesn't lead to arrogance. If it's misunderstood, it, it leads to humility. So then what can we do with our complexes in analysis? And I would just like to mention that Jung's psychology was originally called complex psychology, wasn't it? Yes. Yes. So Mm -hmm. might I just say that, um, is it the case that we can heal our complexes or just learn how to deal with them? They get smaller, they get quieter. Well, one of the things you can do is think about a complex as a cluster of energy. And that energy can actually, through consciousness, be absorbed in a way to enlarge consciousness. You know, if you think about a complex as potentially robbing energy when when it's activated, Mm -hmm. if consciousness can really address it, dialogue with it, and, and sort of deal with it, then that energy becomes more and more available to uh, conscious life. So in that sense, it leads to an expansion of the personality. Now, let me give you an example. You know, year after year, when surveys are done on the American public, their their number one fear always is not uh, a meteorite, foreign invasion, death by cancer, whatever. It's it's public speaking, interestingly Mm -hmm. enough. Mm -hmm. So it's exactly what we're doing right now. So it's a common complex because all of us in our history have those moments when the opinion of others mattered um, enormously. The child is very much at the mercy of the opinion of others. I have to have the good opinion and goodwill of parents or others in my life just to survive. So it begins to load up that kind of imbalanced relationship. It's like I need at some deep level, whether I'm conscious or not, I need your approval. And so to stand up in a class and and read your essay or to go out on stage and perform or to to do an interview like this is activating that primal um, uh, sort of vulnerability. So, you know, there are some people more comfortable with it, but everybody has it to some degree. And then the question is a very pragmatic question. What does that complex make me do and what does it keep me from doing? Mm -hmm. And often 
it keeps people from, you know, expressing what they feel they really need to express. You know, they go to a committee meeting or, or some social setting and there's something they really felt called upon to acknowledge or to address. And for reasons they don't know, they, they don't. And they go home frustrated with themselves. And, you know, it's possible to say, well, we now know what that is. You're, you're inordinately transferring to that group the power and authority to make judgments about you. And, and that has its history in your sort of archaic formation that uh, in some way gets activated in this situation and shuts you down. It's, it's protective. And yet the paradox is the protections that we had to acquire and necessarily assemble in our personality, like the person who says, I have no complexes, mm -hmm. ironically, today are constricting. Ironically, today they get in our way. They, they constrict our personality and it's functioning in the world. So what is once protective later is constrictive. And, and that's why um, sooner or later we, we all have to sort of face what what protections our complexes have for us and say all right but that leads me to too small a life that leads me to too narrow an alley in my life that's why jung said once we all walk in shoes too small for us and to step into larger shoes psychologically means you know to take your life on to to uh, take risks, to move into the places where your heart and soul wish to, to move, but your old complexes say, but you can't do that. I mean, th through the years, I've had person after person say, well, I'd like to, to do this, but there's always a but in a sentence. Mm -hmm. And there's always seemingly a good reason to legitimize why I can't do that, you know. Uh, for example, I'd, I'd like to take uh, a painting class, but I can't draw a straight line. Well, since when was painting about drawing straight lines? You know, it's 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 not about what it's about. It, it's about an old protection that says, what if you step into something and and others don't like it? You see, again, for yeah. a child in its formation, in its vulnerable era, particularly that that can be devastating. And many of us got shut down in terms of our creative impulses and our, our expression of ourselves when, in fact, you know, that's who we really are and that's our best selves. And that becomes, you know, for us a kind of forbidden zone. And most people have it in some area. And, and you know, that's, again, the protections of the past are the, the, the prisons of today. So would you say then that complexes can be healed um, I do we we keep revisiting them over and over and over again and is that how we heal them or are they not sure. healable to, yeah to a degree you know you can put it this way we don't solve these problems because again that'd be like removing history mm -hmm. we, we outgrow them you know we can absorb them into a larger system we outgrow them okay now, you see now now for example I'm a card-carrying introvert Mm -hmm. But much of my life is extroverted. Yes. And the reason is I have been devoted for the last four decades to public education. In fact, I was before that as a college teacher. Mm -hmm. um, so I've actually in my entire adult life has been devoted to public education, which is why we're doing this uh, podcast today. Yeah. And, and, and yet as an introvert, I wouldn't say that that's a, a natural or, or an easy thing to do. So then you see, I have an internal conflict. I have a vocation, a calling that's important to me. I believe in it. Mm 
And I have a complex that says, well, keep your mouth shut and, and stay private. And, um, you know, that way you, you won't um, run into trouble. So that's my problem to struggle with. And, and we all know this. We all have these sort of collisions inside of us. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm going to live the life I'm supposed to live, I have to work through that. And it's not around it. Um, no magic. No five easy steps. You work through it, and, so, and going through it is is how you get to the other side. So I'm I'm interested in that though. So no, you know that you're an introvert. Mm-hmm. So when you have this calling to educate to speak, yeah. why don't you say, well, you know what, that doesn't really suit me because I'm introverted. So I should just stay home and write. Mm-hmm. So what what makes you say, you know what, no. I'm going to put myself out there knowing that you're an introvert. So why do you make that decision? Well, I, I think because um, you're right. Writing is important to me. It's probably the most important mode of communication that I have. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I, I remember as a child being grateful to my teachers for opening to me larger worlds. Uh, my, in, when I was a child, my teachers were my heroes. And um, I can name them all through grade school, you know, mm-hmm. and and I, I early on identified with teaching because remember, education comes from the verb educe that means to draw forth from within. Those teachers were helping me draw forth from within what was within me. And so I, I have always found the classroom and, and lecturing on on the road and so forth. Well, not a natural act for me or necessarily an easy one. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's an appropriate arena in which, you know, you try to bring information, perspectives, insights, examples to people to help educe from them uh, a richer life journey, a, a larger journey. And, you know, that's really been my work for all these years. And, um, you know, the, the reward in it is it, it's, it's a satisfying work. It, it feels reciprocal. You know, in other words, you put something into it and what comes back is meaning. Um, and, and that's more important than, say, economics. It's more important than approval. It's more important than being known or something like that. It, it's whether it has a kind of inherent satisfaction. I'm just also wondering if this has anything to do with um, with typology and not staying sort of stuck in, um, I, I see people so many times saying, well, I'm an INFJ, or, mm-hmm. and, and, and they identify with that, and that's it, it's set in stone. And I'm thinking, well, you might think you're that today, but that's just sort of part of who you are. That's not... It, That's right, and it doesn't stay static. And so, I'm wondering if this is about wholeness, and we mm-hmm. can't just identify with those um, functions that no, were true. strong. Yeah, I mean, I can't very well say to the IRS. Well, you know, I, I, I'm an intuitive thinker, so I don't do numbers that well. So mm-hmm. I, I've just made up these figures, and I'll send them into you. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't work. Or you wouldn't want uh, me working on your airplane uh, before you're about to fly. So my sensation function is my least developed, but I still have to learn how to navigate myself in the world, and I still have to take care of the de- thousand details of daily life. 
And if I don't, who's going to do it for me? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you're right. It, it's, you know, you put it this way once in one of his writings. He said, it's like being in a, in a jungle exploration. He said, you, you, you need the thinking function to sort of figure out the purposes of the mission and, and uh, the, 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 the sort of tools by which you'll get there and so forth. You need the feeling function to keep up relationships with your party. You need uh, the sensation function to see um, which ba- branch has been broken uh, on the path ahead. And you need the intuitive function to discern f- behind which bush the tiger waits. Mm-hmm. So in real life, we need all of these functions. And, and we don't have them in equal facility or equal distribution. And that's part of why some things are easy in life and, and some are very difficult. Mm-hmm. And um, still, we we find that often our growth is found in the areas which are most difficult for us. Yes, yes. I'd like to go back to something you said earlier about being humble. Mm -hmm. And I love that because I don't think that's a very popular stance. What would you say to the people that, um, and I see them everywhere, that say that we should be positive all the time? Well, I think that's delusional, you know, um, Thank you. life, life is, is, is at times profoundly sad. It's profoundly shocking. It's profoundly horrifying. Uh, there is gross injustice in the world. And of course, part of our task is not to be overwhelmed by that and mm-hmm. to still carry our spirit into the tasks of life, you know. Um, life doesn't ask of us simply to stand on the sideline and sort of uh, cluck our tongues at uh, all that's wrong with life. On on the other hand, um, you know, uh, happiness is is a byproduct. It's it's interesting because we almost have a kind of cult of happiness in contemporary uh, North America. Yes. What do I need to do to be happy? You know, I never ask that question. If if you're doing what's right for you in your relationships and in your work and so forth, then from time to time, you're flooded with that feeling we call happiness. But it's not a permanent state. It's not something you sort of experience once and it stays forever. It's highly transient. And the pursuit of happiness often can lead to actually narrowing uh, alleys. Sometimes we have to go to the places that are most difficult for us to visit because that's where the growth is found. And, and that's where we, we grow up, as a matter of fact. So, um, you know, happiness is, is not all it's cracked up to be. You know, if you're hungry, happiness is, is a meal. And too much food will, will, you know, be disastrous. So it's like happiness is contextual. And it's a byproduct of an individual in a given moment. And, you know, as, as a goal itself. Now, I, I would say purpose, meaning, sense of satisfaction. These are things that have longer staying power. Um, that's why I've, I've been identified with the role of teaching for my adult life, because I always found learning uh, a joy. I always was grateful for it. And I still am. And, and that's me speaking. Someone else has a different uh, take on life and, and a different set of needs. Mm-hmm. For me, it was all about learning as much as I could. And, and not just for the sake of learning. It was also in order to navigate in the world. You know, the more we know, the, the better our, our capacity for life's decisions. So um, there is a self-interest here. But there's also a point where, in, in a sense, you say, all right, I have to figure out 
you know, what makes sense to me in this life and try to live that as best I can and not exclude other aspects of life because real life calls upon us on a daily basis. You know, pay your bills, uh, take care of your children, stop at stoplights. You know, those are reasonable expectations from the social contract. We're not talking about isolation. We're not talking about narcissism. We're not talking about self-absorption. It's in a sense, uh, you know, right efforts at right duties at the right time, but but always with the mind on and and what provides that sense of purpose, satisfaction, uh, calling in my life. Well, your quest for knowledge and learning certainly comes through in your books. I've learned a lot about literature and about history just by reading your books, um, and I, I want to thank you for that. Um, Going back to complexes, um, did you say that they're part of the shadow world because complexes are shadow government, something like that? Yes, yes. That in many ways, we all have a a shadow government uh, that is at work in making choices in our life. Mm, Okay. Yeah, I'd like to talk about that a little bit, and I'd like to talk about the shadow a lot Sure, sure. Now, I'm, we're using the word shadow in the sense in which Jung used it. Mm-hmm. Um, for, for Jung, the shadow represented those parts of myself or those parts of my groups and organizations that, when brought to consciousness, I find troubling. I may find them troubling because they are contradictory to my values. Or I may um, find them troubling because they bring me into areas of conflict. Or I might find them troubling because they ask more of me than feels comfortable at the time. You know, sometimes our best selves become part of the shadow. Mm -hmm. When you ask yourself, where did your childhood creativity and spontaneity and joy in, in life, where did it go, you know? And, and that in itself can be part of our shadow. So the, there's, a, there's a tendency for the ego to sort of push into the underground those aspects of psychic life that are seemingly incompatible or challenging or contradictory in some way. Now, from that, of course, can come evil as well. You know, you were talking about the people arguing over the parking spot. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, out of that can come violence and terrible consequences. Does this make these people evil people? No, but bad things can happen and come from, from good people, as we all know. Yeah, I, I'd like to interrupt you here um, because y- your book, I I would have to say, is my favorite book on Jung's psychology and my favorite book that you wrote um, is called Why Good People Do Bad Things, Understanding Our Darker Selves. And when you were here in Chicago in 2014, um, I was at your lecture when um, you spoke for, I believe it was the Wellness Institute. And you said you, that was not, you didn't choose that title for that book. That's right. And I'd like to ask you why you're not happy with that title. And I also want to mention that I get so triggered when I hear somebody describe somebody else as, quote, good person. Oh, he's a good person. Or he's a bad person. And I think, don't we we all have it all? I mean, are there really good people and bad people? I, (laughs) I, I don't see it that way. 
No, I agree with you. Um, f- first of all, your, your first question. My, my title was Dark Selves because mm-hmm. I wanted to acknowledge there are many other components to the personality than just the ego complex. And um, the publishers chose that title because they thought it would sell more books. Mm-hmm. And I was a little embarrassed that it, it was kind of a ripoff of Rabbi Kushner's well-known book, um, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. Yeah. Um, so, the, But the point was they thought Dark Self sounded too dark as a title, and which is already a shadow issue. <laughs> right. And, and they also uh, thought it might be confusing. And, and, you know, they're in the business of selling books, and I'm mm-hmm. in the business of writing them. So that was just one of those, those decisions. Now, uh, of course, why would I or why would you be exempt from the whole human project? I mean, we, we carry the, the DNA, the genetics of the human project, and terrible things can come from good people. Many good people in history have done things whose consequences reverberate in, in bad ways throughout history and vice versa. Uh, so, you know, from me, behaviors are coming all the time, depending on where they're coming from in me, but also depending on what kind of consequences they have in the world. In other words, a, a classic example of this is mm-hmm. virtually every parent says, I mean well for my child. I'm, I'm going to make proper choices for them. I'm going to direct them in the way I want them to. But a real shadow issue is most parents want children to grow up uh, like them. Right. to be little clones, to be endorsing the same social, political, and religious values they have, to to sort of choose the right people in their life, et cetera, et cetera. You know, if we love somebody, we have to recognize the autonomy of that other, the otherness of that other, and that the children just sort of pass through us en route to their own journeys. And, and yet it's very hard. It's a big shadow issue how parental approval and disapproval, which is so important in a child's formation, becomes so, such a critical issue. And, and that's why we have the cliche of working with mother and father complexes in analysis all the time. It's not as if that's the only thing we address, but you always have to sort of start with <laughs> what were your fundamental lessons about your inherent values and what were your, your models to, to base yourself upon? And, and what were the dynamics that were created between you and others? And, uh, you know, out of that come, you know, either we repeat those patterns into the next generation, which is very common and has been recognized throughout human history, or we spend our lives trying to get away from it. So you might say, uh, every time I say I, I'm not going to be like my mother or I don't want to live my father's life, I'm still being defined by some other rather than something inherent within my own soul. Mm-hmm. Or, or we're trying to fix it in some unconscious way, like a life of distraction or, or a life of numbing and, and so forth. Not trying to sort of anesthetize, if you will, the uh, internal conflict we have between the natural impulses of our, our growth possibilities and self-expression versus all of these sort of conditions that had to be met. So shadow is everywhere. It, it's again those, and, and it's in groups as well. It's not only individual, mm-hmm. but every group, every nation has its shadow. You know, in in America, for example, we were taught in history classes in in grade school and high school. By and large, you know, America wore the white hat in history's melodrama. Well, 
Um, tell that to the indigenous populations we destroyed. Uh, tell that to the hundreds of thousands of people who were brought here in slavery. Uh, tell that to the earth that we've ravaged and virtually destroyed. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we, we have a dark, dark history. When people say of other nations, well, why don't they like us? We're such good people. We're people of goodwill. Well, it might behoove us from time to time to ask them. And they might tell us the sides of America they see um, that are predatory, invasive, and disregarding of their values and their traditions. Okay, so what do we do with that? Knowing both sides exist, say Mm -hmm. just for example with the United States. Yes. How do we live with that? With they're both true, the good Mm -hmm. and the bad. Yes. And and not identify with one or the other. Well, you have to be conscious, right? Mm-hmm. Really conscious. If, if to, to quote your, your uh, mythical person here, that I ha- a person has no complex, mm-hmm. that's simply an unconscious person, all right? To say we're good and they're bad is simply unconscious. And, and it, it ignores the bad that comes out of us through that kind of arrogance and cultural indifference and, and, and so forth. And, and the rest of the world has, has benefited from American culture, to be sure. Mm-hmm. And it's also suffered from American culture yeah. and, and so forth. And, and that's simply practically true. And a person unable to, to own that, acknowledge and be accountable for that is, is a person either naive or, or frankly, immature. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd really like to talk about the state of the world today without mm-hmm. getting too caught up in the political situation. But mm-hmm. I've, I've never seen what I'm seeing today. Um, well, and, yes. And, and at the same time, you know, throughout history, there are times of cultural ferment. Um, it's happened uh, in our country many, many times. You know, we had that rather recent disturbance called the Civil War and mm-hmm. uh, uh, with 600,000 dead and a million casualties and, and you know, economies ruined and so forth. Um, you know, we've gone through crises before. We've gone through cultural change before. Um, we will again. Um, that's, that's a fact throughout human history. That's how change occurs. The, the real issue psychologically in the present hour is um, a, a, about change, actually. Okay. Um, the, there, there was a, a Polish uh, sociologist by the name of Zygmunt Bauman who just passed away, I think, last year. And he coined a phrase, liquid modernity. And what he's saying is the nature of the modern experience is of not uh, fixities, if I can create a word, Mm -hmm. liquidity. In other words, he says change is the nature of things. And and we expect change and nothing's permanent. I mean, to, to give a kind of cliched example, what's the latest iPhone going to look like? What's the latest technology? What's the latest news? What's the latest scandal? It's all about change. Now, there's, there is in each of us a conservative element that says, okay, but change is threatening. You know, I preserve the, I, I prefer the known. Uh, I prefer a consciousness that can control. The more I understand things, uh, the more I'm able to have the fantasy, at least, that I'm in control of things. 
So what's happened in American culture over the last few decades is, um, if you'll permit this word fixities, that is to say, fixed categories of human nature and identity that were presumed to come either from divinity or were in the nature of nature itself, uh, have, have been deconstructed and are seen as what they in fact are, social constructs, not, not that, that fixed in, in the world of, of reality. Mm -hmm. So for example, you know, when I was a child, there were very, very clear definitions of what it meant to be a woman, what it meant to be a man, uh, relationships between ethnic groups and races and the whole field of uh, social mores and, and, and sexual mores has, has changed enormously. Are we to assume that there weren't gay people in the past? There weren't uh, transgender people in the past? Of course not. They, they were so, so persecuted by the collective that they simply had to live a shadow life. And, and many of them died doing that. And many times their spirit was crushed doing that. So as we begin to, to realize, well, in another, of course, area of, of life is fixed definitions of right and wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, this is what you can do and this is what you can't do. And what that does is, is gives people marching orders. It gives them a script. It also, again, is tied to a particular culture at a particular time and place. You know, one culture worships dogs, another culture eats them. Mm -hmm. Which one is right? Which one is evil? And you begin to realize that so many of these moral constructs are in fact that. They're constructs. They're not inherent in nature, as we thought. They're, they're social in readings or interpretations, if you will. So the, the rapidity of change and the loss of certainty has produced in the body politic enormous anxiety. Mm -hmm. That's why they appeal to make America great again, to, to go back to a better time, uh, is, is so compelling for so many people. Well, as, as a survivor of some of those times, I, they weren't so good. There was an enormous amount of sexism, mm -hmm. an enormous amount of racism, an uh, enormous amount of bigotry that was institutionalized, legitimized. It wasn't a good time. Um, and it was a time in, in, of enormous inequities and injustices of all kinds, social, economic, and so on. It wasn't a good time. But, but in people's mind, it's like a time that at least I knew who I was, I knew what, what reality was, and I could sort of count on that. And, and that's been eroded. And, and that's the great division in the world. And, and on the one hand, it leads to rigidity and fundamentalisms of all kinds. And other, on the other hand, it leads to what appears to be often um, chaos and so forth. But, you know, it's the nature of nature to change. And it always has been. Nothing is fixed. Uh, as as um, the philosophers and, and um, the quantum physicists have told us, even the solid table in front of you or the chair mm -hmm. on which you're sitting is a, a congeries of, of atoms and molecules that are assembling and disassembling. And the person speaking to you is constantly uh, undergoing changes of cells dying and being reborn and so forth. That, that as Heraclitus put it, um, you know, over two millennia ago, um, you can't step twice into the same stream because the second time the stream has flowed on mm -hmm. and you float onward. 
So, you know, change is the nature of nature, and it always has been. But the rapidity of change has destabilized um, the, the psychic life of so many people. And it's happened many times in history before. You know, about a little over 3,000 years ago, a panic spread around the middle of uh, Mediterranean that the great god Pan had died, which was the god of instinct and connection to nature and was being replaced mm -hmm. by the emergence of a new city-state of Greece and Rome and other empires. And, and then in the fourth century of the Common Era, uh, St. Augustine has to write a book called The City of God in, in which he distinguishes it from the human city to explain to people how the, the stable order of their time, namely the Roman Empire, had collapsed. So significant change uh, always produces anxiety. And, and we're going through a time of rapid change. And it's certainly true that things are changing faster, perhaps, than any other time in history. Mm -hmm. and, and that, I think, increases the, the level of anxiety. So in, in a sense, the mature person can hold these opposites in some kind of internal tension without being destroyed by them okay. and, and learn to navigate because in every change there are opening doors, there are opening possibilities. And, and this is not to ignore real you know, economic dislocation in our, our country, which needs to be addressed. It's not to ignore that, that some populations have felt you know, left out of, of what's happening in uh, America. All of that, uh, all of those things are very real and, and certainly require sincere um, respect and, and investigation. But underneath that is the real question. Um, can I have a center within myself that gives me a, a sense of grounding, uh, internal gravitas, and a sense of direction? You know, one of our most sensitive prophets, as you, as it were, was uh, Emily Dickinson, who in the 1860s wrote an aphorism, the sailor cannot see the north, but knows the needle can. And I think what she was saying, recognizing the, the impact of, you know, Darwinism and many other significant um, uh, social and intellectual uh, religious uh, revolutions going on, can you find your own inner compass, uh, something that tells you what's true north and allows you to make, um, you know, conscious decisions and directive decisions that you can count on? And um, she was right about that. What, where I'm struggling right now is with the reactions that I'm seeing from people um, people I know, people online, um, strangers, friends, family, reactions to what's going on politically when you turn on CNN and you see and hear what's going on in this country. Mm -hmm. The complaining, the criticizing, the, um, the jabs, the memes, the, the ridicule, the making fun of, Mm -hmm. I don't understand it. And it's, it's so mean and it's so mm -hmm. angry and finger pointing and at like all politicians are idiots and all politicians are corrupt. And mm -hmm. I, I see so much energy being expended on this every single day. I don't get it. I, I would love to understand what's behind it and, and what, 
what can we do instead of that? Well, you know, that's, that's a profound issue. And each of us has to deal with it in our own way. Because what you're seeing there is, you know, how the ego, when it feels uh, un- um, uncertain, when mm-hmm. it feels the threat of ambiguity, um, and in the end, all things are ambiguous. We know very little, in fact. But that's, again, destabilizing to the human ego. So mm-hmm. it will tend to position itself on one side or another in any question in order to feel solid ground, in order okay. to feel its, its uh, you know, solidity. And we, we all have to be able, at some point, to tolerate the tension of opposites. You know, uh, th- this is a time in which the center has virtually disappeared in American politics, which is very sad. And it's not the only time again in history. Remember, Yates in, in 1917 writes, you know, turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. Mm-hmm. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood dim tide is loosed. And everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Well, that certainly is describing our day, isn't wow. it? And that was in the midst of the, quote, the troubles in Ireland, you know, the Civil War and the war against uh, uh, England. And, of course, the great conflict going on in Europe, the, the war to end all wars. So, you know, uh, the, these, these enormous conflicts themselves are not new. But, um, you know, for, for Yeats, it was like some... Something is playing out. Something is over. It, we're, we're, we're seeing an end game, to use Beckett's phrase. But what's coming, we don't know. As Yeats said in his poem, and what rough beast its hour come round at last slouches toward Bethlehem to be born. In other words, what new era will come out of this? And the truth is, no one knows. No one knows. And, and during those times of substantial transition, um, it is destabilizing to the ego. I don't expect things to get better. I actually expect them to get worse. Mm-hmm. But, but again, the person of awareness, the person of conscience, the person of goodwill is, is going to have to struggle to hold that tension of opposites and to say, no matter what the issue, there, there is something valid on both sides of this question. And I need to be able to find what is valid in both positions even while I do have to choose, you know, whom I vote for and what my own values are. Because in the end, um, the truth, the obvious truth is we have to live together and we have to live with the, with ourselves. And at the end of the day, you will want to find a, a, a country that, you know, can live up to our motto of out of the many, one, once again. And the one is not united under some sort of political dictator, but is, is united in a sense of, the appreciation of our diversity. You know, talk is cheap, but, you know, most of us would say, well, yes, diversity is a good thing. Well, yeah, as long as I'm around people like me, um, mm. which automatically undermines the idea of diversity. Yeah. The whole concept of diversity is, it, but you also have to, in some way, embrace the other as other. And, and that's where the insecurities of one's psychological history come rushing to the surface. And we all have them. None of us is exempt from that. So, you know, the work we have to do to heal our country starts within our own souls. You know, what, it is, what is in me fear-bound? 
mm-hmm. and, and defensive. What in me is unable to see the validity in the other? Um, you know, the, again, the familiar shadow statement of the ancient uh, Jewish rabbi named Jesus who said, I, I can see, you know, the speck in your eye, but not the log in my own eye. Mm-hmm. And, um, so apparently the, the issue of the div- divisive uh, shadow is not something we've invented. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you said something like it's it's easy to see the shadow in others. Sure, and sure. what happens when we point out someone's shadow? Well, Th- that's you, not right, is it? Well, you put it this way. Well, the truth is, you know, other people's shadow can be harmful to us. So we mm-hmm. have to at some point become aware of it. You know, maybe someone else is manipulative or someone else is is controlling and, and it affects us directly. So right. we do have to become conscious of, of what that is about and, and why why it's happening to us and how we need to respond to it. But that said, Jung always said when we, you know, find so much wrong with the other person, it's often because we've projected our own shadow. In mm-hmm. other words, I can easily point to your greed, your pride, your vanity, uh, your ambition, uh, you know, all of these things about you. But then again, since when am I exempt from the human condition? When am I, uh, you know, absent from the whole human project? So I, I have to acknowledge that I have those things within me myself. Because the, the, the shadow shows up in four ways. Most commonly, it stays unconscious, and therefore, it just keeps spilling into the world on our children, our partners, our society, uh, without our being accountable for it in any way. Or secondly, we project it onto others, and it's convenient for me to do that because then you're the problem, not me. Mm-hmm. Or, or thirdly, we can actually get caught up in it, and there are times when people really feel the energy of the shadow and just get subsumed by it. Often when people go to uh, stadia or rock concerts and so forth, they, they really enjoy getting a, a, a little labile consciousness and swept up into the moods of the moment. And it can bo- be both exhilarating and violent and, and who knows, the same in political rallies. Um, so the, the shadow identification is, is uh, a great risk too. And, and fourthly, is to make it conscious, in which case I have to say, what is wrong in the world is in me as well. And if I can address that within me that is um, problematic to self and others, then I've done at least some small task for my world as well. I've lifted something off of my children, something off of my partner, something also up uh, off of my uh, colleagues at work, something off of my world. And uh, if enough people do that, you know, Jung put it towards the end of his life. He said the the security of the world uh, hangs by the narrowest of threads, Mm -hmm. and that's the consciousness of the individual. In which case you can say, well, you know, boy, are we in trouble. (laughs) Or you can say, okay, I now know what I have to do because I'm one of those individuals upon whom the fate of the world depends. Mm. So when, oh gosh, I don't know how to follow that. When people are complaining about politicians or pointing their finger at politicians and they're outraged by it, mm-hmm. what, what kind of, how do we respond to that? I, I am seeing that constantly. I think that that's the biggest issue today. 
um, mm-hmm. is that, well, wh- what is it that is upsetting you about well, that? And, and no, and, and I just was wondering is, is our current administration, I don't want to use his name, but I have to, Donald Trump is, seems to be bringing out a lot of things and a lot of people and, sure. and we're making it about him instead of about us. Well, everything you say is true. And, you know, the best thing you can do if you don't like the current bunch of politicians is vote them out of office. That's that's the American way. And um, I, I think it's certainly true that that Trump's level of self-awareness is something, you know, located in early childhood. He's 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 never grown up, psychologically speaking, and he's profoundly um, needy power driven and insecure. And, um, you know, the, the, he's constantly trying to look for any message about his value and his worth and, and, and so forth. And that's a massive complex at work. And, you know, at some level, given the access to the instruments of power, it's, it's a, it's a rather dangerous uh, combination of a person and, and, and his psychology, uh, and, and the possible consequences for others. So that's that's a that's a matter of fact. And that's not about politics. That's about psychological maturity. Okay. And he's not a very mature person. I think that's become abundantly clear. Um, again, if that sounds partisan, it's not meant as such. It's mm-hmm. meant simply a, a common sense psychological observation. And we we need uh, the capacity to tolerate ambiguity, the capacity to tolerate opposites, the ability to recognize the complexity of issues. And, and to be able to call upon a consensus rather than to rule by fiat and, and uh, administrative decree. So it's, it's a moment of genuine um, difficulty, uh, even crisis in, in the republic. There's no question about that. And, um, you know, the voice of the individual citizen is essential. Um, but hopefully in, in, with a constructive motive. You know, in the beginning, before I started recording, you and I were chatting for a little bit and just talking about what we were going to discuss today. And I brought this up. I I wish I remembered what I said because you said, well, some of this is not fixable. I hope you know that. And I wish that I was recording because I don't remember exactly what I said. What would you mind telling me what you meant by that? Well, some of our social issues are, mm-hmm. are never going to be resolved to everyone's satisfaction. That's simply reality. Okay. Um, the same is true with our, our own personality developments. I mean, yes. you never arrive at some sunlit meadow where you say, you know, I'm, I'm free now of conflicts. I'm mm-hmm. free now of regret. I'm free now of interfering uh, behaviors and so forth. It's like um, that's just a fantasy. Um, it, it, life is a struggle and, and life brings new challenges. And, um, you know, life, life is not a disease unless the cure of which is mortality. It's, it's not a problem. It's, it's a journey, you know? And, and I've often said to people in analysis, this isn't about fixing you. It's, it's about making your journey more interesting to you. Mm-hmm. And you may think, well, is that enough? I think that's everything, that your own life becomes a series of challenges to you, that your own life is full of opportunities for choices. It's, it's moments where you grow and learn. 
And it's the journey, not the arrival that matters. Because at some level, we never arrive. Um, and if you consider the, the old cliche of being on one's deathbed and being conscious, as we look back on our lives, we have to ask, did I show up as myself? I don't mean in some way that's ratified by others. I'm talking about in a way that was supported and ratified by something deep within. Uh, whether understood by others or not, whether applauded by others or not, did I show up as me in this life? And if I fail to show up, why? And I don't think any of us want to be in a position of saying in that last hour, no, I never showed up. And the biggest obstacle to our showing up, frankly, is our fear. You know, fear governs more of our behaviors than we can imagine. When I wrote the book, What Matters Most, and apart from the usual categories of work and, and, and love and that sort of thing, uh, the first thing that came up on my own internal screen was, it matters that fear not govern our lives. We, it, you can't avoid fear. That would be crazy. Uh, that would be naive. Mm -hmm. It's something else to lead a fearful life. In other words, what does fear make you do? What does it keep you from doing? And that's the accounting that we are going to have to um, deal with at the end of our journey if we're conscious, to say, all right, where did fear keep me from showing up? And, and that's not something you fix. That's, at some level, a, a daily challenge. In the middle passage, I mentioned every morning, two gremlins sit at the foot of your bed, fear and lethargy. Yeah. And lethargy is about, you know, fear says, well, it's too big for you. <laughs> Don't show up. It's, life's just too much. And lethargy says, uh, chill out, you know, turn on the telly. Uh, tomorrow's another day. Have a chocolate while you wait. And, and then your life's over. And they're the enemy of life, that internal torpor, that, that lethargy that pulls us back into unconsciousness, that keeps us childlike and naive and avoidant. And, and fear that, that uh, causes us to um, stay out of harm's way. And yet, you know, life is, life is risk, and you have to step into the places that life calls you to and that are dangerous because that's where the treasure is found and, and that's where you grow. And um, that, that's where life takes on its greatest meaning. Wow, I, I'm speechless. Um, would Would you like to end there, or that would be fine? Let me just add. Jung said once, "Life is a short pause between two great mysteries," and that's a pretty good definition. A short pause between two great mysteries, and I would say our summons is to make that pause as luminous as we can by simply showing up and trying to be who we are as best we can. And that, in the end, is our gift to others. Thank you, Dr. Hollis. You're welcome, Laura. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'd like to thank Dr. Hollis for his time today, and I look forward to speaking with him again in August. Please visit the website speakingofjung.com, that's J-U-N-G, for a list of all of his books, as well as links to his upcoming talks, his videos on YouTube, and a short film he did called What is Depth Psychology? On the website, you'll also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, 
which are available to listen to or to download for free. The episodes are also available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. I have a lot of people I'd like to thank who continue to make this podcast possible. First and foremost, my partner in crime, Michael Deacon of End of Days, the Michael Deacon Program, Daryl Sharp and Liz Jefferson of Inner City Books, Diane Braden, Frith Luton, all of the followers on Twitter and Facebook, and a big thank you to all of those who have made donations through the website. So with my gratitude, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung. <laughs>